Welcome to All My Children Wear Fur Coats with Peggy Hoyt. Our goal is to keep loved pets in loving homes by educating pet parents about the importance of ensuring every pet has a forever home. For more information about creating a legacy for your pet or to listen to archive shows, visit AnimalCareTrustUSA.org or LegacyForYourPet.com. Join your host, author, estate planning attorney, and animal advocate, Peggy Hoyt. One. Hello, pet lovers. Welcome to All My Children Wear Fur Coats. I'm your host, Peggy Hoyt, and this show is brought to you by the law offices of Hoyt and Brian, where we create estate plans for pets and their people. Also brought to you by Animal Care Trust USA, a national nonprofit dedicated to keeping loved pets in loving homes. We do this by educating pet parents about the importance of creating a pet trust for the pets they love. Today, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you our special guest. His name is Daniel Shuloff, and Daniel is the CEO of Keto Natural Pet Foods, a company that aspires to be the most honest and progressive pet food company in the world. He's an entrepreneur, he's an activist, and he's a science-minded individual who backs his claims with substantial research. He's also a fellow lawyer, not sure whether he wanted me to tell you that or not, um, and he is the author of Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma. In 2016, um, was that when that was released, Daniel, 2016? Yeah, it was published in the fall of 2016. Okay, well, it has been called the most rigorous and probing canine nutrition book ever written, and Daniel is here to talk to us about this awesome book. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. So the problem with lawyers is we could talk forever um, and we will talk as um, as long as you want to. But I am very interested in hearing more about dogs, dog food and dogma and how you got interested in writing this type of a book. Yeah, well, I think you could in a lot of ways, like trace it back to some personality qualities that come out of being a lawyer. You know, when I was a lawyer, I worked in litigation. And most of the clients for whom I worked were like big companies in big disputes with each other. And one of the things that they ask you to do in the course of that litigation is learn the technology or whatever other subject matter is at the heart of the litigation. You can't have a good fight about who owns what without understanding it way down at the micro level. And so over and over again, I had to learn things like voice, the technology of voice over IP patents or like how the design scheme works for designing the P3 aircraft, like a World War II era aircraft that Lockheed Martin made. And so you develop this like intellectual hubris that like, if you come to understand something well enough, you, you get a good sense of like confidence in your own ability to break it down and analyze the reality of it. And that's kind of what gave me the motivational fuel to write my book. My book is basically an attempt to explain why chronic diseases, non-communicable, non-transmissible diseases are so common among pets in the Western world, particularly obesity. It's a book about like the problem of obesity and the, the problem to like try to frame the magnitude for you. More than half of the dogs and cats in the United States today are overweight or obese. So if your listeners walk out the front door, pick the next dog they stop on the street, it is more likely to be overweight or obese than not. It is more common than not. 
And it's so bad for dogs that like when you look at the studies that kind of evaluate its impact on lifespan, it's worse on a percentage, unfortunately, like we were saying earlier, dogs live short lives, right? So, but on a percentage basis, it's worse for them than a lifetime of smoking for, for you and I. So if you find a dog, that, that dog, you walk outside and you're like, oh, that, there it is. There's the average overweight dog. That dog is like a pack a day smoker. And it's the most easy, you would think, right? That it would be the easiest thing in the world to do something about it. And so it just made no sense to me. I like, heard those facts. I was like, how could this be? And I just followed the rabbit hole and like four years and 400 pages later, you've got the book. Wow. Um, I really try hard as a dog owner not to have fat dogs, but I have to say that I had a, I'm just going to call him. I always called him a naturally fat dog. Big bone. Yeah, because he didn't eat a lot. He didn't eat any more than the dogs at my household that weighed the same amount as him. He was just fat. And now I'm wondering if maybe we couldn't have um, benefited from some of this knowledge that you have in Dogs, Dog Food and Dogma, because I believe you take the position that dogs should eat a lot more protein. Yeah. So there are kind of two main theses that the book advances, you know, to a large degree, it's a science book. And it just says, this study says this, this study says that, here's what it means. And that aspect of the book, the main take-home conclusion is that dietary carbohydrate, so these are like not fiber that just passes through you, but dietary carbohydrate, the kind of stuff uh, that's, that makes up potato and rice and wheat, is really the fundamental cause of obesity in pets in the Western world. That's an important thesis because it is not what is being taught in the veterinary textbooks, the nutrition textbooks that are used in any of the veterinary curricula in the United States right now. So it's a counter mainstream position, but it's one that's based on what, it, you know, to me looking through the evidence and I'm writing my book, it was like, how, what, how could this not be the mainstream? It's the most clear stuff you've ever seen in the world. So that's, that's the first point. The second point is, well, if this is so clearly the explanation for this otherwise very hard to explain epidemic, um, the reason for it, the reason that I believe it hasn't been adopted more commonly is that big industrial forces, big pet food forces that have a very invested stake in the in it, that the kind of make very carbohydrate rich products are kind of uh, playing a role in shaping an, an unfair and underhanded role in shaping what pet owners and the veterinary community understand about the science of the topic. Okay, so a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Uh, I guess to some degree, I guess you would say that. But I mean, I'll tell you what, it's like, I don't, what, you know, in writing this book, it's not like I'm using, um, you know, speculative methods or anything like that. Everything that I like documented here at the book, there's a hundred pages of sources and references at the end of the book with like every little quote uh, diagnosed. But um, yeah, when you turn over the leading veterinary textbook, that's, uh, excuse me, veterinary nutrition textbook that's being used in the United States today. If you look at the back cover of the book, there's an embossed logo on the back of the book that says produced by Hills Pet Nutrition. The leading textbook, the one big one that's used in the country. It's like if you, you know, if you went to medical school and you were to talk to a doctor about his nutrition uh, curriculum 
and you were to take a look at his textbook and you flip it over and it says, you know, produced by Philip Morris or produced by McDonald's. It's, it's roughly equivalent to that. It's just mind blowing, but it's like what the norm is in, in the world of veterinary nutrition. Very interesting. So you are a dog owner, so you come by this naturally too. Yes. Yeah. I've got, um, time I wrote my book, sadly, the dog that really motivated it has since passed on after living, I might add, like a very long and healthy life. Um, but yeah, we, I right now share my home with three of them. And the, the most, I guess the most, the one with whom I've got the longest standing attachment is a large adult male, St. Bernard. His name is Nash. And he is, I would struggle to name any dog that gets more attention out in public than, I don't know if you have any, ever had like a giant breed in your life, but my God, everywhere you go with them, it's just like children draping themselves on him and people stopping and pointing from like the other side of the street. But yeah, he's a, he's a phenomenal dog. My first Hey, dog. as they say, dogs are chick magnets, right? I guess, I guess. I mean, my, um, my partner works in animal welfare and pet, as I was telling you, in pet welfare. So she's a professional dog person too. So it's a good fit that way. I'm sure it didn't hurt uh, to bring her into, you know, to see my dog. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always try to go out in public with at least one dog under my arm, if not more, um, because they are great uh, conversation starters. People love to talk about their pets, show you pictures of their pets. Um, I mean, they, they are our children, right? Yeah, that's kind of the emotional core of my book it just kind of proceeds from this idea that like, it's a, you know, it's hard to call the death of a pet an underappreciated tragedy because anybody who's ever been through it, like I recently have, knows that it's just like a, you know, it's a cripplingly serious traumatic event for a pet owner. Absolutely, it and is it's, so painful. Yeah, so it's, it's, I mean, it's as bad as anything I've ever experienced. And I've, you know, I've, I've had, seen it all. And, you know, it, it's based on like you wouldn't have that you would not feel that way if it wasn't some kind of a repurposing of the like emotional hormonal attachment stuff for raising kids right it's like if you didn't if you didn't feel bonded to your kids you would never feel this kind of bond you have with your pets and there's nothing obviously there's nothing worse in the world than the idea of a parent losing a child before the parent's time is gone and yet like as pet owners, we're asked to just accept that reality of every one of these relationships that we have. And so, yeah, it's a huge, you know, it's, it's a huge deal. And I, you would think, I mean, it doesn't just stand for reason. It's just beyond dispute that we're all really invested in making sure that those short lifespans are as long as you possibly can, like, reasonably make them. Absolutely. Pairing as smoking a pack a day, you think would be like, nipped in the bud, no problem, easiest thing in the world to control. Um, and yet it's more common that it's more than 50% of the uh, population. Well, and, and would you agree that pet parents, we tend to overfeed our pets, number one, because we feel sorry for them because they can give us those soulful eyes and um, talk us into that extra treat or something off of our plate in addition to their regular food. I don't, I won't deny that it happens. And I won't deny that I myself feel that same uh, sense of, of uh, you know, I feel that when my dog begs, I feel it too. 
I find that though, a, a, not a persuasive explanation for an epidemic. You know, okay. when we're at the end of the day, it's quite, you know, it, unlike myself, the, the feeling I've got to go through, the feeling I've got the self-denial I've got to do when I pass by a bakery that's making cookies or McDonald's fries or whatever it is, that's hard. And that that's real. But in the case of my dog, I've got a label on the back of the product that says exactly how much the animal needs to eat every day. And if I'm going to be giving him treats, it's really easy. He'll never even notice if I take one tablespoon out of it. So I can give him a couple of extra treats throughout the day. I'm not denying it happens once in a while, but it's like, to me, that as a, as an explanation kind of just didn't, it didn't add up for me. It's like, people love their dogs too much for that, to, for them to be like, oh, well, just let him smoke. You know, yeah. I mean? it's like, you think right. there's something else to it. Absolutely. All right. So this is hard for me because I'm a vegetarian. Okay. So I don't eat meat and I'm a carboholic. That's um, a really hard life. <laughs> so um, fortunately, I don't make my dogs carboholics and, and I'm not the one that succumbs to the treat giving like my husband does um, when he's offering them peanut butter or um, ice cream every single night. But talk to me about how prevalent carbohydrates are in our modern pet foods. Yeah, so um, something like 90% of the food that's fed to pets in the Western world is kibble, is like extruded style pet food. Um, of that, it has long been assumed that carbohydrate is a required component of it. And in the vast majority of cases, it makes up at least 40% of the product. Um, the reason that you see it so commonly, the reasons I should say are kind of twofold. The first is that a calorie of carbohydrate costs the manufacturer far less than a calorie of animal protein. So if you're somebody that does eat meat, a calorie of steak say is 10 times, 20 times as expensive as a calorie of potato. Right. Um, so there's a huge attraction for producers there. The second is that, like I said before, it's long been believed that you have to use it in order to make the manufacturing process work. So you're, you're somebody, you said that you eat a lot of carbohydrate, but if you ever tried to bake a loaf of bread or a cupcake or a bagel, but not used flour, tried to make the dough without that, then you know that what happens is the dough, when you heat it up, doesn't hold together. It just wants to crumble and fall apart. And that's because of the digestible carbohydrate that's in there. Starch molecules, when you, which is basically a fancy way of saying carbohydrate, when they get heated up, they break the gelatinize and they hold the dough together. And that's kind of functionally what they do. Um, and kibble is, in, in a lot of ways, is basically just made by like tiny little nubs of meaty bread, basically. And so if you all of a sudden take the starch out of it, it just wants to crumble and fall apart and it can't kibbleize. Um, so for those two reasons, long before anybody ever thought um, to do the kind of experiments that would reveal how bad carbohydrate is for animals, it was already an ingrained part of the industry. And that's like a, such a dangerous situation. It's exactly the same thing that happened with respect to smoking in the United States by the, in the 1950s. Like by the time the science came out that said smoking causes lung cancer, it was a billion dollar industry. And the same thing is the case in the kibble industry in the United States. And once you have these entrenched interests that like 
you make it, it makes it much harder to like turn the Titanic. You, you, know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So it, short answer is about 40% of the product. Okay. Um, and I mean, in the wild, dogs probably don't eat carbohydrates, do they? Well, in my, uh, the first chapter of my book, like the book, my book is kind of written from, through my own uh, perspective. It's like, I went here, there, the other, I did this. And um, the first place that I go is on this kind of um, attempt to answer these questions is I went to Yellowstone National Park and I lived with the biologists at a thing called the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is like the premier place in the lower 48 for studying gray wolves in the wild. And the reason that's relevant to all this exercise, as I'm sure you know, is that dogs and wolves are incredibly genetically similar animals. Um, you know, a lot of biologists, when you ask them, how do you distinguish one any species from another species? The most common answer is, they, well, two different species can't interbreed. So like an elephant and a, um, you know, great white shark can't like breed to get right. They're different species. Right. In the case of dogs and wolves, they are two distinct species, but they're so similar. They can and often do. I literally have one that lives in my home because my girlfriend adopted one. They breed with each other and they make hybrids. So they're incredibly similar. And that's relevant to this discussion because like you can go right, you know, it, it's difficult for you and I to try to figure out how our caveman ancestors lived. Well, if you want to see how a domestic dog's caveman equivalent ancestors lived, you just go to Yellowstone right now and you just talk to the biologist and you go, how do they, what's it like to be a wolf right now? And the answer is essentially they eat 0.0% carbohydrate, not like very little or anything to that extent, 0.0. Like when you come to something you hear that is an anecdote that's commonly told is when you get to like a, a wolf kill that's been, if it's a bison or a moose or a elk or something like that, that's been lying around for, for enough time that they've given it a good once over, two things you'll find left over. One is like these big, you know, these are huge animals that have bones that are like so big and they can't break them necessarily. So you find these huge like hip bones and stuff. And then you'll find these big wads of grass. And what that is, is the contents of the digestive organ is called the rumen that like elk and moose and animals like that use to digest all this plant material. And it just sits and kind of ferments in their stomach. And that's how they break it down. And wolves will literally eat the stomach lining around the stuff, but the grass matter itself is still sitting there. And the reason for that, you know, it's like at the risk of going into stuff that's probably too in the weeds, they literally can't digest it at all. They don't make, there's like one of the very few ways that dogs and wolves are different. They like folks have sat down and done the genome sequencing and said, okay, here's the places they're the same, here are the places they're different. The vast majority is the same. Two places they're different. One is in the brain. And that's not a surprise to anybody. It's like what makes a dog domesticable and a wolf, not so much. The other is in the production of a salivary enzyme that's called amylase. And amylase is the main thing it does. You, your body makes it, my body makes it, and my dog's body makes it. It breaks down starch. It's like if you put a loaf of a piece of bread in your mouth and hold it there for a minute, it'll start to taste sweet. And that, that what that is, is the amylase in your mouth breaking down the starch molecules into molecules of sugar, which then start to taste sweet. Dog's body does the same thing. Wolves can't do it well. So they literally can't eat carbohydrates can't eat it at all. And so until 10,000 years ago, your dog worked exactly the same. Now they've evolved the ability to like, 
digest it, to draw nutrition out of it, but not without causing all these other like massive chronic disease problems. So other than obesity, what are some of the other chronic diseases that carbohydrates cause in dogs? Yeah. So diabetes is basically the second huge one. That's like the, you know, elephant in the room. It is, it, and this is like, when you look at the veterinary nutrition textbooks and you see that they're not covering all the research on the isocaloric studies of like carbohydrate versus protein, it's one thing, but in the world of diabetes, it's, it's, it's even worse. It's like they, all the mechanisms that explain why carbohydrate is not something that a diabetic dog should eat. If you want to minimize its insulin, uh, exogenous insulin, uh, like supplementation, it's all spelled out in there. You know, they basically say, okay, when, well, when your dog eats carbohydrate, what happens is it breaks it down into glucose and then the glucose floods the body. And in diabetes, as your listeners probably know, that your body doesn't produce enough insulin to make all that glucose go away. It's so like all that is spelled like that. That's all black letter law. It's spelled out all the fundamentals, the, the like um, how it works is all spelled out. And for some reason, the conclusion that like, well, then, you know what we should do? Let's just not give that dog all that glucose in the first place. Let's just feed it something where it does it's not going to spike its blood glucose like that is like not the conclusion they reach. And so it's absurd. And so as somebody that sells pet food, I need to be, um, there are, very sensible regulations in the U.S. that prevent folks like me from making disease-related claims about what my food can do. So I can't say things like my ketona product cures diabetes. As, as you can imagine, that's like a pretty, that's not something you can do. Right. But if you, like, the folks measure their dog's postprandial blood glucose when they have dogs with diabetes. And it's un, like, it's just, it doesn't, um, it doesn't surprise you. It's just completely night and day type results. And the amount of exogenous insulin they need is completely different from folks who are just feeding a prescription diabetes diet. that's 40% digestible carbohydrate. That's a, that's a real product you can buy right now in the United States. Just absurd. Okay. So you invented or created a dog food um, to address the concerns that you saw in the dog food or pet food industry. Um, right. did, did you have a dog that was sick and that's what motivated you or, or how did you know? No, no, no. My dog was, was healthy and alive at that point. It was basically that by the time, you know, I started writing the book without like, a, it was just like a record, like a real time record of my attempt to try to like explain this thing. It was hard to explain, but by the time I was nearing the end of it, I could see where it was going, that it was like right. okay, carbohydrates, the problem here. And for somebody, if you are someone who has a very little dog or a, or a lot of money, then you don't have a very difficult time if, you, if you're so motivated to feed your dog a low carbohydrate diet. Right. You feed any number of non-kibble products, raw products, freeze-dried products um, that don't require the same amount of carbohydrate. And so often, though not always, um, contain much less of it. Um, the problem is those products are like on a per calorie basis, they're like four or five times as much as the fanciest kibble. So you're talking, you know, a huge leap right. and got a tiny little dog. You're talking about the difference between, you know, 30 cents a day and $2 a day or something like that. 
but I had, you know, this big Rottweiler. I've got a big St. Bernard right now. They're literally 20 times as much food that they're eating as a tiny, as somebody with a tiny dog. Right. And so it's a difference between $10 a day and 50 a day. It really is a major difference. And so I, I just kind of, you know, if somebody can make a kibble that has got the nutritional content of really low carbohydrate and high meat protein content, they'll be on to something. There will be people that would buy that. And so we just kind of spent the next year after I published the book trying to figure out how to do that. Okay. And so apparently you did. We sure did. Yeah. We make a, our company is called Keto Natural Pet Foods. Um, our flagship line of dog kibble products is called Ketona. And it's less than 5% digestible carbohydrate. So it is not a marginal improvement on the previous best of the best. It is a completely different um, paradigm. Um, it's got more meat protein per serving than any kibble that I'm aware of in the United States right now. Um, what can I say? It's like, a, it's, it's a completely unique product. It's, if you're motivated to, if, if like, like it is for me, if reducing or minimizing carbohydrate intake is what you think is most helpful for your dog, we're one of very, very few realistic options. It's either kind of like a complete and balanced raw or fresh product that is also very low in carbohydrate or us or like, you know, since we can't sprung up, there are a couple of copycat companies that have kind of like taken our same approach. Okay. Yeah, that's about it. That but I, I understand what you're saying because I have, I have six dogs at my house. Yep. Um, ranging in size from five pounds to 90 pounds. Yep. And uh, yeah, the little five pounder, no problem. Um, but yes, when you try to switch to something to feed six dogs who, yeah, it gets really expensive. Yeah. They're the like, uh, it's the most physically diverse land species on the planet. So like, you know, there's no, the difference in size between, um, you know, my sister, who's a five foot tall, 100 pound person, and the largest human being who's ever lived is, you know, is maybe two to one, is less than two to one, to whatever right. that eight right. foot person versus yep. five foot person. It's just, con you just described an everyday situation where a dog is 20 times as large as, enough, as the right. other dog that's in your house. It's a really big difference. It's hard for, we sell our products on a um, subscription style basis. So we don't sell through any pet stores or anything like that. You just come and purchase it directly from us. We ship it to you. And in order to do that, we've got to be able to calculate how much each individual dog requires. And that, <laughs> that like diversity adds a lot to that. It's not just like, well, do you need one bag a day or two bags right. a day? Like yeah. huge, huge differences. Well, and I notice if I go to your website at ketonaturalpetfoods.com, the very first question is start by telling us about your dog. Yeah, that's, we need like basically go through just kind of 60 seconds worth of info about what kind of dog you've got, what the issues are, how active it is, how old it is, all the stuff where there's actual evidence that it impacts like how many calories it needs every day. And right. then we've built out an algorithm that basically calculates, okay, if you want to feed this food, you feed this much each day, we should be a handy little measuring cup that's got it all marked off for you. So it's real easy to do. And then we always put more right, right when you yep. need it. So should I start with telling you about my biggest dog or my littlest dog? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, it's up to you, whatever you think is most appropriate. Um, yeah, we do have a good, uh, 
what, if you do decide to give us a try, you'll be, you'll be pleased to know. Sometimes I tell people about the subscription service and I'm like, oh, well, that's super great because it's convenient. I don't have to go to the store anymore, but I don't know if my dog is going to tolerate it. I've switched foods a million times. And every time I do, it's like my dog goes through a digestive upset period. Oh yeah, definitely. When we ship you your first, like we have like a welcome kit. We send people when they come on board and not only like we call out the fact that you don't have to, unlike if you go to the back of every dog food that's in, I don't know if you get tons of samples and stuff, look at the back of all of them that you've got right now. Every single one says the same thing, which is that we begin the food. You want to transition the dog onto it over time, nice and slow. Right. And um, we not only don't say that, we say like, you have just switch it over all at once. You're not going to have any problem. We're that confident in it that it's a real thing. And the reason for that is again, it has to do with carbohydrate content. It's like if you switch, go from giving a dog 30 grams of rice a day to giving it 40 grams of potato a day, all of a sudden it's like, it, it's one thing to say a dog can digest carbohydrate, but it requires, it has to be all just right. Like the stomach contents, the microbiome contents has to be like exactly just right. And it takes that a minute to like, if you tweak the content of what's coming in a lot, that's all got to readjust over a period of time. Right, so sure. you, have, you have that upset and ours, we just don't have almost any starch in there at all. And so it's not something you don't need to like recalibrate the microbiotics. It's not needed. And so we tell you're just like, yeah, just switch over all at once. You're good. Dog makes little firm. Uh, I don't know if this is PG enough, but <laughs> tools, yeah. not like these big loafy. It's like if anybody's feeds are you know all meat raw diet, you know it's like they make these very uh, firm, breakable stools look nothing like kibble-fed dogs, and that's what you see with ours as well. All right. Well, and I have to ask because I also have cats. Do you have a product for cats? We don't yet. We don't yet. Let me say, but there are some caveats. Uh, the first is that our products, although they're marketed for dogs, do meet AFCO's nutrient requirements for cats. Like the basically the big difference, um, I'm generalizing, but generally speaking, the big difference between dog products and cat products is the requirement to include taurine. Taurine is an amino acid, comes from meat, and cats can't make it on their own, whereas dogs can. So okay. dog foods don't have to include it. Cat foods do. We have so much meat in our products that they've got tons of taurine in there anyway. And so I, I, they meet all the nutritional requirements for cats. AFCO's nutritional requirements. That said, something I've learned about pet food. I, only, I published my book five years ago. So like I'm not, I'm pretty new to the business of making pet food. But um, when you're starting up a, like a pet food startup, you got to go after dog people first. Right. And the reason for that is like, for, you, you know, you've got six dogs, whatever that is, 300 pounds of dog, it would need just you as one customer is worth 20 times what one new cat customer is worth. Right, of course. Yeah. So economically, get our feet on the ground. Yeah, we just got to do it. But it's coming. I promise you, as long as we keep uh, doing what we're doing right now, we'll, we'll have it no problem. In the meantime, yeah, diets, if you're somebody that wants a low carbohydrate, high protein diet for cats, canned products, lots of different canned cat products can deliver on something like that right now. I always laugh at my cats because if you remember the Seinfeld, Seinfeld episode where they talked about the muffin tops and the muffin stumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My cats will not eat cat food stumps. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird.
they're so much pickier. I've ne literally never lived with a cat. I'm like kind of attracted to the idea of having one, but I'm a little afraid of like, oh, oh. Yeah, dogs and cats, they get along great. Um, I've seen, like interspecies play. I've seen yeah. that multiple households recently. I didn't even know it was a thing. Like where dogs and cats literally wrestle and play. And yeah, oh yeah. Dogs and cats living together. What's happening in the world, right? All right. So um, what would you leave us with today? What's the most important thing you can really tell us? I mean, Obviously, you left your life as a lawyer to become a nutritionist and an entrepreneur. So what would you tell us? Um, I mean, we've covered the main, I've told you the two main pieces of the book. Obesity is the one thing you can do where, I mean, for the amount of money that we're all willing to pay for marginal improvements to what we're doing for our pets, obesity is a knock you over the head, obvious one. There's, it's completely within your control and it's something that can be managed and has a huge proven impact on the animal's lifespan. That's one thing. But if you give me a second thing, it's completely different. Right before I began this interview today, so we're recording right now on a Monday, the afternoon of Monday, August 2nd. And where I left to come here is from the virtual version, uh, the virtual meeting for the Association of American Feed Control Officials, AFCO, which is the body that regulates how pet food in the United States, for all intents and purposes, is labeled and sold. And I'm telling you that because a pretty monumental thing took place today, which is that they've basically set forth brand new nutritional labeling regulations that are going to start to be required at, at a timeline that hasn't been determined yet, but the rules themselves are now locked in. And they're going to require wholesome carbohydrate disclosures for the first time in the history of pet food. So if you're somebody that feels persuaded by what I'm saying, or you say, oh, obesity is a big deal, Dan's right, carbs are bad. Right now, it's hard. It's not easy to go find a low-carb product because amazingly, the manufacturers don't have to tell the consumer how much carbohydrate is in there. You got to like calculate it. I'm telling you that as of today, APCO has made the commitment they're going to start requiring that. And it's, gonna, it's not going to happen next year because they give the manufacturers a chance to get there. But that's the big news in the world of pet food that your listeners should definitely know about. Well, that is big news. And yeah. uh, thank you for Probably. sharing that with us. Breaking news, folks. So, Breaking news uh, from the world yeah. of animal regulation. Yeah, this is really cool. So, um, all right. So get the book called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma. I'm sure available everywhere. Yeah, you won't have any trouble finding it. Okay. And visit the website at ketonaturalpetfoods.com. That's right. We give new subscribers a big discount. Pricing is better than you're going to find on Amazon. It's, you know, it's more expensive than your Hills product if you're used to that or whatever. But it is not. It is definitely within touching distance of all the others. Less than plenty of kibbles. And it's not. It's expensive for some people, but it's a completely different type of product. Okay. Awesome. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing this information with us today and uh, the opportunity to get to know you. Likewise. So, um, yeah. So to our listeners, thank you for joining us. And uh, we were talking today with our new friend, Daniel Shuloff. He is the CEO of Keto Natural Pet Foods and the author of Dogs, Dog Food and Dogma. And you guys know I love dogs and uh, my 
my motto is until there are none, please adopt one. And we hope you'll join us next time. And until then, happy tails. And don't forget to plan for your pets. Go to Animal Care Trust USA, actforpets.org. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on All My Children Wear Fur Coats with your host, Peggy Hoyt. We hope you learned something valuable for the benefit of your pet. We want to keep loved pets in loving homes by educating pet parents about the importance of ensuring every pet has a forever home. Get more information about creating a legacy for your pet at AnimalCareTrustUSA.org or LegacyForYourPet.com. Buy a copy of All My Children Wear Fur Coats, How to Leave a Legacy for Your Pet on Amazon. Join our email list or make a donation. Pet professionals and advisors are invited to join our trusted advisor network. Until next time, happy tales!